Welcome back to Jack's Corner, where I talk about everything, just about everything in life. Hi everyone, I'm Jax. And I'm the Duchess. Hello. We're going to talk about 23 years in prison, what that what, what that life would be like, and uh, what would lead somebody there, there to that point in life where they have to surrender and sacrifice many years of their life as an American. That is... Uh, really got to be something to to look into for the female population i think and coming from the duchess here who was in prison i wanted to talk to her about her life in prison what it was like getting out of prison after serving so many years did she face a a a technology shock did she face society shock did she face any kind of culture shock when she was out? I, I, I'm curious to know these things. All right. Well, we can start from the beginning. Um, it began with really some poor decisions that were made under the influence of drugs, as shallow as it may sound. Uh, that's just the way of the world back in the 19, late 1970s and 80s in Hollywood, which is what I was a proponent of. And... Um, 23 years in prison had its ups and downs, but it taught me a lot as well. And I would like to think that uh, it enriched me. Um, I don't like to look at the negatives in my life. I prefer to look at the upsides. Um, as you can imagine, you know, it just, it makes life a lot more bearable and understandable too, I think. And people, just having to deal with people, whether we're in, in prison or out of prison, I've dealt with some very interesting people in life and I've dealt with people in life that probably could have put me in jail. Sure. Sure. You know, all of us, all of us have been there. It's been very interesting. And even when you're in prison, you deal with people in prison that could keep you in jail longer. Absolutely. They can enhance your sentences, you know, just by doing something like there was this one woman in max and I'm, she's, um, got the cerebral palsy and she goes to the fountain and it's an open fountain, and it's right in front of the cop shop. So we're locked down. So we've got doors um, into the day room, and then a door into the hallway that would lead to the cop shop. And the cop shop has doors, uh, television screens, um, hearing monitors. So here is this older woman, and she wants some water because it's uh, med time, medline. And she tries to reach the water with her medication, right? She puts the medication in her mouth, a little white um, cup, and she goes to put her mouth on the faucet and she starts falling back. Of course, what's the natural instinct as a human being? You catch them before they fall, which is what I did. And then I was reprimanded and warned with an infraction because I had broke the rules. I was not allowed to touch another inmate. And I went to my hearing, which, you know, you have within, it just depends, but within 24 hours I had my hearing. And I explained that, um, what was I supposed to do? Just let the woman break her skull open on the concrete floor because she would have fallen backwards instead of, you know, me catching her. And I was told, yes, that's what you should have done. So that's just kind of... uh, (laughs) There's no thought. rehabilitation within the prison system, it sounds like. People come out of prison 
and they punish you while you're in prison for doing humanitarian things instead of uh, recognizing it and giving exactly. you um, some positive info, you know? Exactly. You're absolutely right. And that's um, why we need to get rid of the prison system the way it is today because it is so dysfunctional. And uh, we as a society are married into a dysfunctional relationship with the prison and jail system. Now, when were you released? Um, what year? Yes. I don't even remember. Was it like 2003, I think? No, it was after that. Because I had to do parole. But um, it was around that era. Yeah, Yeah, and you went in around 1980. 1980. 1980. So yeah. you were, yeah, that makes, that, that, that adds up. 23 years. Yeah. What was it like your first year? The first year is chaos and paranoia and fear and uncertainty and um, bad PTSD. It's, uh, for me, it's all I knew about prison was that it was like what the movies that you had seen, you know, as you were a child in that era, which was when you get into the prison, the women have knives and they're going to um, cut you with their knives. Was and, it like you that know, in prison? Women had knives? Yeah, but not as bad as what I had anticipated. Um, I wound up having to back one and my partners, but... Um, okay. Yeah. But no, 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 not everyone. Not everyone. No. No, of course not. It's almost like its own mini society in prison. Not everyone carries a blade in the street. Right. Not right. everybody packs a gun in the street. <laughs> right, <laughs> you exactly. Know, not everybody packs... Uh, some kind of protection for themselves every day on the street. It's just right. random out here on the street. So in prison, it was, I mean, you weren't allowed to, so that was one thing, but then having one was another thing, and it was only a few. Would you say a few out of the majority? Yes. Okay. Okay. Interesting. The paranoids and the drug dealers. And I had been a drug so dealer. So you must have been scared your first year. Oh, I was petrified. That was going on. I was petrified. Because you're learning a whole new system. And yes. there's a hierarchy, I would believe. There is a hierarchy, absolutely. And you were yourself, you know, I at started the, top. the bottom of the to totem you pole at, at the, the beginning. Yeah. And you were at the top in the end. After yes, I was. Years yes, I was. Because were, you were yourself there with lifers. Uh, I was a lifer. Yeah, I was given uh, natural life which was the longest sentence given to any female in the history of the state of Washington at that time. Now they have life without parole, but yeah, I was the original. Did you ever think you'd be serving that much time? Never. Because you thought eventually you'd be paroled. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I would think, knowing the, some of the details of your crime, you, you did attempt murder. Yes. No one was severely hurt. Correct. No skin was broken. Right. Uh, I don't even think you left bruises. Right. But it was an attempt. A very, exactly. very <laughs> poor attempt because, yes. you know, if you really yes. wanted to hurt somebody, I think you really would have I had the capacity to do that, but I certainly, I had no desire to hurt But the fact that people that had committed murder, in fact, were being released before you were. Oh yeah, That's they would what do like me. they would do five years, that really and they me. would do seven years. They would do ten years, thirteen years. 
they would do, you know, maybe that's about everyone else just did about that for first degree murder, but not me. You know, I was, um, an activist and I fought for women's rights. I was registered with the New York bar as a jailhouse lawyer. So, um, I was very active with grievances and you got to help a lot of these women and well, I would hope I would like to think so. Yes. Yes. You even ran programs while you were in jail. Yes, I started them and uh, created them. And I think those programs, after reading your book, Eating the Ashes, these programs that you implemented with the help of the parole board, right? No, the parole board did not help. They didn't get involved? No. No. Only the other inmates and the associate, James Walker, and the... He became um, superintendent of WCCW. James Walker supported me. Alice Payne supported me. Uh, Chev Revlin supported me. They were just like a handful. Okay. um, They were within the institution. That were like the wardens of that jurisdiction. Yeah. It was because of them that I think with your work, they were able to put out rehabilitation like true rehabilitation programs for women yes because you were able to then give them coping skills that's part of it yeah and when you first go in the prison if you remember your first year there was nothing available nothing near what you had started absolutely i mean you were scared most of the time you were terrified so terrified for you to finally get to a point after many years where you're actually delivering the programs and and rehabilitating women that must have been very powerful for you it was it was powerful for all of us those involved um for the recipients for my for my team of women that i trained yeah it was a very important a very important thing and we couldn't have done it without some of the staff supporting it but they could see the positive results and um the efficacy of give me an example so that our our listeners can understand give me an example of a program that you ran All that right. you can think of one specific program how it helped the inmates okay okay all right one was assertiveness training versus aggression so most people when they get locked up they think that whenever you do a violent act or you go to defend yourself it's an act of aggression that is not true Aggression is something that can consume you and you can lose control of your own emotions and your own mind and become violent. Assertiveness strives to protect the assailant and the victim. So you're trying to empower both people with information and trying to resolve an issue and diffuse it, not have it lead to violence try to find a common ground and um, negotiate it, you know, both people expressing their feelings. And, you know, there's a huge difference between assertiveness and aggression. So I think that was one of the programs that I started that I uh, think was really pivotal. That's excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, uh, wow. Okay. And I'm kind of going to jump here and there, back and forth um, with the timeline. So when you finally get released from prison, finally the day comes, you walk out those doors, who do you first greet? Tell me about that, that part of your life, getting out of prison, what that was like for you 
coming into the free world. Well, of course, coming it into was... a new environment, new rules. It was Jake first and Juliet second because he came in to get me and then my mom and then we went home and then from there I was like a, um, <laughs> I was like a tidal wave, I guess. I just <laughs> went cleaning, cleaning and cleaning and cleaning oh, and organizing and or- organizing. So yeah, I really was. But I always had this sense that at some point my luck was going to run out and they were really going to come back and bring me back in prison. So that was a real difficult, that was very difficult. So we're going to talk a little bit about Veronica's writings while she was in prison. And uh, one of the things that I really loved flourished about her was her artwork, which she still continues to do. And we'll talk about that a little later. But she's going to introduce one of her writings right now from an experience that she had in prison. And hello, I'm back. Okay, this is called Talk of the Damned. Murder. The task was to be settled in mere hours. The victim would fit the needed requisites. A serial killer would arrive in Bellingham, Washington on a 1980 fall afternoon. Another woman's body was to be discovered shortly. The method would be a familiar one to the Whatcom County homicide team. Their worst nightmare would be relived. A serial killer threatened to return to continue the reign of terror he had enjoyed only 20 months previous. What was not anticipated was that this individual was not a serial killer, nor was it a man. The peculiar murder tools remained undisturbed within the luggage she retrieved from the airline conveyor belt. There were no suspicious glances. She was just one more pregnant woman, dressed perhaps a little bit too California, with her long blonde hair held in a silk scarf, her muslin dress, designer sunglasses, more suited for beachside patio than rainy forests of Bellingham, Washington, but still she hardly could qualify as anything noteworthy. Her purse contained plenty of cash and a cachet of narcotics, all would be essential, according to Kenneth Bianchi, in her work ahead. The taxi drove to her destination. Only she didn't come with it. Within her heart, she had no desire to hurt anyone. They arrived at a small motel off the town's boulevard, as Ken ordered. Like her plane tickets, another fabricated name, kept her real identity hidden as she signed the motel register. Still with gloves on her, picked up, Still with gloves on, she picked up her key as she said thank you in her best southern drawl. Everything about her was a performance, a creation, a fiction, but after all, she was a Lee Strasberg method actress. The motel's room was was standard, a queen-size bed, a mirrored vanity area, and a small bathroom. She kept her gloves on as she unpacked and arranged items in the drawer unit beneath the mirror vanity area. One pre-noosed rope was to strangle the victim, as Ken had previously demonstrated in the visit room. It was carefully laid beside a secondary rope, which would serve to restrain her victim's wrists. Items organized, she began a ritual of medications, tranquilizers, cocaine, and alcohol consumption. Finished with sating her addictions that kept the hallucinations at bay, she tended to her blonde wig and the adjustments of her false pregnancy pad that concealed her slender, flat stomach. A fiction 
a creation, but who was she really? What possessed her? Or perhaps even who? She wasn't always hidden behind artifice. She had had a childhood, a birth, and a life before that day in September of 1980. Veronica, I was thought much too sensitive, easily hurt at rejection, despite the tremendous rejections I had faced throughout my life. As a young girl, I adored my father. When my mother divorced him, I was crushed. Due to my congenital condition related to my kidneys, I began numerous prescribed medications at around five years of age. These dulled so much of the pain, albeit physical and emotional, that I didn't yet face the loss of my father. Resultantly, a difficult relationship with a power power exchange emerged in our family as my older brothers were put in charge of the care of me. My mother had to work to support us while diligently pursuing her education and spiritual life. Consequently, I felt estranged, not only from my family, but from my peers and others. I was the proverbial outcast, too poor to dress well enough to fit in. My mixed blood only added to the stigma of my being essentially fatherless. It was a small conservative Midwestern community, and this was decades ago. I was deeply saddened by the peer and community ostracization I encountered, which as a child in my position of basic poverty normally faced. But the villainy villainy of that social position had not yet reached its epic until after I was raped on my 12th birthday by the son of a popular local family that I felt now unmarketable for marriage. Well, in truth, I was 10. I was raised Catholic, virgin, till married, was simply one more mark against me, the gravest I felt and the most traumatic of my life. Still, perhaps even today, I think that that initial rape at 10 altered the course of the rest of my life. Like a ladder constructed of tragedy, step upon step, I climbed until I reached that forever life-altering act, attempted murder. And what were the tragedies? They read like a cornucopia of melodramas. But for some women, the events are dismal, like their own. For example, Goldie. I met her in the late 1980s. It was after my imprisonment and my subsequent escape to go rescue my son from a California institution where he was discarded. Unwanted boys are housed. Only my son was the one wanted. Because of my own history of child abuse and rape, etc., etc., I've always had a deep desire to protect the, quote, broken children, and so it was with Goldie. She had been placed in the small 16-cell unit of women's max, of the women's prison's maximum security wing, where they housed the state's most dangerous female felons, or so such persons are perceived, though this is certainly not always the case. But Goldie was, no doubt about it, a handful. For starters, she was very pretty, very young, and very emotionally volatile. The evening she appeared in the Max Day Room, a big commotion arose with the other inmates. The new girl was utterly inappropriate. She was dressed in a see-through camisole and short shorts. Given her Playboy centerfold appearance, jealousy among the dykes emerged, while the squares looked down upon her as a cheap, tawdry slut. And the others looked at her as just more trouble to disrupt the unit. As Goldie remained in the day room, the women began venting their dislike for her until eventually shouting, their threats roaring in the tiny concrete room. 
Someone came to my cell asking me to intervene. It seemed Goldie was threatening someone. Her threat was quite large. She screamed that her mother could put contracts on anyone Goldie desired. I knew this was more or less likely bravado talk and requested everyone settle down and allow me to speak with the girl. I did. My first suggestion was that Goldie put on some clothes and secondly, she refrained from engaging in yelling matches with the other women. That was the beginning of a long and often confusing relationship with her. I was a loyal friend throughout her self-destructive bouts of manic depression and became a surrogate mother of sorts to her during her prison stay. This is how I learned of her story, her all-too-familiar tragedies I could easily cry over and did so on many nights. Goldie had survived as a prostitute for many years. When she was around 12, her mother, a fierce drug addict, brought a string of men over to her cheap apartment. Goldie was awakened from her sleep on the couch <clears throat> and told she was to entertain her mother's guests. It was simple. Goldie would have sex with the men so her mother could get her fix of dope in exchange, which she did. This kind of treatment from an early age by her own mother molded her character into a distortion. Who becomes the, quote, slut? But mostly it's the victims, like Goldie, who haven't yet separated their sexuality from their basic worthiness. Did she enjoy the sex? Of course not. She loathed it. What Goldie loved most was love, and this is what rarely she encountered, no matter whom she fucked, nor how well she did it. She is always, she was always baffled as to why no matter what she did to please her pimps or sexual partners, she was incapable of securing their true and honest affection. She wasn't able to distinguish the errors in her emotional judgments, that she chose always the th wrong partners, the ones that had histories of abusing their women, seemed to go over her head. She was so emotionally driven, she often fell for, quote, love at first sight, Forget that her love interest may be a dangerous individual and violent. In her mind, these were just, it was just a matter of chemistry and the sense of love that blinded her to all their failings. She had no control over. A devil became a misunderstood saint, and the subsequent beatings and ridicules that were ultimately libeled against her were, of course, her fault. They were essentially blameless the victimizers, and she was somehow insufficient to meet their needs. Her father had been in the service, and the scant meetings they shared during her childhood of turmoil did nothing to significantly alter her perceptions of men. Goldie could never do enough for the love interest of the moment. Apparently her father drank a great deal and was often involved in fights that were brutal. During the last meeting with her father, Goldie witnessed his murder. An altercation had erupted with a father's associate over money, and there was chasing and verbal threats throughout the apartment complex. Goldie was running alongside her father until his opponents shot him in the back and left him for dead with Goldie to comfort him. Years later in prison, whenever Goldie had emotional outbursts, which were quite frequent, she would end the climaxed rages in tears and sobbing. Inevitably, the grief over her father's murder would emerge and she'd retell the story of his death and the memory of his blood drenching her clothing. Goldie was 19 when I met her, but still sucked her thumb. She was emotionally still a pre-adolescent and suffered from not only post-traumatic stress disorder, but bipolar manic depression. 
She was often prescribed psychoactive medications, though often refused to take them. She did, however, save her doses until they were stockpiled, and then she would ingest an overdose, or at least threaten to, and this led to her being placed on suicide watch. Her behavior was erratic. Her oversensitivity to rejection often led to various forms of self-mutilation, cutting parts of her body and procuring tattoos were some of the forms of her acting out, manifesting. On one occasion, I recall her coming into the shower room broadly smiling that she had been having her cellmate needle a tattoo on her inner thigh. She unabashedly displayed her upper thigh to me, written vertically upward in very sloppily lettered tattoo ink, was the phrase, you're now entering the twilight zone. That the words were read going up her thigh to the direction of her groin suggested to me her estrangement from her own sexuality. I was horrified and angered that the tattooist would agree to tattoo this on any woman's body. That Goldie was a remarkable beauty with a superb figure made the obscenity of the tattoo all the more repugnant. However, the tattooist was perhaps venting her own frustration and jealousy toward Goldie, as she, the tattooist, had her own inner demons to relegate. But this was Goldie, given to reckless tangents. Her tangents of self-abuse and violence, not only toward herself but others, she perceived as threatening. But she would get in injured far more than the person she'd attacked meant little to her. In the course of her young life prior to prison, she had a turbulent affair with a pimp named Duke. Duke had seduced her with promises of love. The seduction was what captured Goldie. The sex was never satisfying, but it did give her a sense of closeness. And the all-too-necessary dose of violation a non-orgasmic woman experiences when she engages in emotional betrayal against herself through sex committed in an act of bribery for affection. Duke had other young adolescent whores who he pimped, all of which believed they were the special girl, the one Duke cherished above all the others. Duke was considered strong and powerful. After all, he carried a gun and boasted about the murders he successfully gotten away with. Goldie felt a comfort in that knowledge. Here was a man, invincible, and better than her father. Her father, after all, died, and he wasn't even man enough to kill his opponent. But Duke was safe to love. No one would kill Duke. That meant they couldn't kill her. After all, Duke loved her, and as long as she sold her sex for money and robbed every man she could in efforts to bring Duke more money, then all was safe within the world for her. Duke needed money. He loved Goldie best when she gave him lots of it. What was wrong in this arrangement? Goldie understood that her body was a thing to negotiate with, her only real asset. It never occurred to her that she had a good mind, capable of learning and thinking, that could actually be educated. Whenever an inner stirring would suggest to her that she could be more than Duke's whore, her emotions erupted into hysteria. The fear of being alone in such a threatening world where mothers sold their children and fathers were murdered and left to die in their child's arms, it, it was too overwhelming. No, better to live with the beatings Duke gave her from not bringing him what he considered was the right amount of money for that night. On the nights it rained, tricks tended to stay indoors. Other nights, Goldie's fatigue or seasonal illnesses would lead her to oversleep. Whatever the reason, the result was less money for the night to give to Duke. 
alcohol and assorted drugs helped to dull her woundings, the emotional ones, and the physical as well. The, no the notion of Dick's ability to murder two of his prostitutes on different occasions because they had betrayed him and to equally take the life of a drug dealer who ripped him off was to Goldie at the beginning of their relationship a major part of her attraction to him. Later, it became an overt terror that kept her bonded to him. She began to fantasize of running away, especially when the metal coat hangers were used as a whipping device by Duke to control Goldie's rebellion or emotional outbursts. She had been beaten so severely at times that her face was unrecognizable, and this was a definite curse as no trick would buy her in that condition. And naturally, it would always be blamed on Goldie, not Duke, that she had caused the beating for her stupidities. Goldie's substance abuse reached epic proportions, and that this led to her numerous arrests, which finally brought her to prison, would be only part of the truth. The larger picture suggests that her criminal behavior was a method that she employed to save her own life. It was her only method of escaping Duke. Throughout her imprisonment on her good days, she remarked that she didn't want to leave prison because it was better here than on the streets. She didn't have to work the hostro, and Duke couldn't get to her. If she tried to leave him when she did get released, he'd find her and kill her, just like he did with the others. However, Goldie's moods varied, and so she did her recognition of the dangers that surrounded her free world life with abandon, abandon at times. On some days, I'd catch her on the telephone proclaiming undying love for Duke, and she'd never be able to be happy without him. She wrote him love letters, and then would cut herself with some sharp implement or provoke a fight with a guard or a prisoner. There were only crises in Goldie's life, never calm. Although she would attest to great love in one breath, and then suffer the besiegement of reality remembered in the next breath, she had no real loyalty in her emotions regarding her love interests. She courted with a string of admirers, men and women, came in and out of her life with remarkable frequency, guards and inmates. It was as though she could ensnare them only for a moment, and then her magic would fade. Once the sex was introduced into the relationship, everything altered for her. The attacks of paranoia were relentless, because she and I were never sexually related, our relationship remained one of the most stable she had ever had in her life, certainly in prison, and it was a safe haven for her. I cared a great deal. It was not unusual to see her obsessed with one lover one week and the next week following her, hear her lamenting over being madly in love with someone else new and be equally obsessed with that person. Her world was one of inconsistency and fear. Fear motivated her. It propelled her. Goldie's cry was to my ears always consistent, however. It was the cry of an abandoned child begging to be authentically loved in its purest sense. Sex was her enemy, not too unlike Carol Bundy, whose sexual demons were to be given full reign over her life as well. Yet I think it was much more than the pursuit of orgasm that drove Carol Bundy to the acts of debauchery. I believe one must look beneath the picture given and go to find the home from where her demons were spawned. And that is the story of Goldie.
and I will continue later. Very articulate. Thank you. That concludes our podcast with the Duchess, who spent 23 years in prison. Join me back next week on Sunday as I go into more of her experiences and life in and out of prison. Thank you for listening to this new podcast. We hope you come back to my corner, Jack's Corner. I'll see you then.